The Retrograde Approach, Episode 8, Ruptured Abdominal Aortic Aneurysms. Welcome to another edition of The Retrograde Approach. My name is Sam Farrant, and I'm joined by my friend and yours, as always, Dr. Yogi San Sivakumar and Yogi. Good evening, Sam. Thank you for the kind introduction, and what a fantastic topic this evening. Yogi, on a scale of 1 to 10, how well have I pronounced your name this evening? Nailed it. Nailed it. I reckon um, we, we, can, we can have you part of my family. It's all good. <laughs> so, Yogi, this is a good episode, as always. It, it is. Look, I think um, there are many parts of vascular surgery which involve multi-complex patients um, and multi-complex pathologies. However, when it comes to aneurysms, it's pretty fair to say that um, this is the attractive end of the business. This is the uh, procedure that the nurses love. Bit of this excitement the, at, on, the, on a Friday afternoon. This is the procedure that when you finish, you chuck on... <laughs> Hero by Mariah Carey, just to remind <laughs> you, just to remind yourself that some days you have a win at work. Again, last week's episode, I called you a loser, and I'm I'm trying really hard not to do that right now. Look, so there's no there's nothing better than a bit of Mariah Carey in your operating theatre, just to remind <laughs> you that you can also you can swing a ballad anytime. All right, but uh, seriously, let's get let's get down to business. Um, I think you wanted to, to send a quick thank you to some of your colleagues at the PA. Yeah, look, a uh, big shout out to um, the nursing staff at the PA, especially those vascular nurses that have got onto the podcast. Um, really sincerely appreciate you guys um, listening to us um, and to, again, everyone that's um, fed back to us in regards to the podcast, really do appreciate everything and your listenership. Um, and again, just to remind you guys that we're on Twitter, Instagram, and you can also catch us on our website at vascular.fm. All right, Yogi. Uh, I think it's no secret ruptured triple A's are a high mortality condition. Um, what sort of uh, mortality rate would you generally consider um, to be accurate? Yeah, look, one of my um, former mentors described it to me that when someone presents with a rupture, they're already behind the eighth ball. um, And really everything you're doing at this point is to bring them back. Um, And so the sort of follow-up to that comment would be that a ruptured aneurysm um, has a high risk of mortality. And in the modern era, that's still in the ballpark of 50% or greater. Um, and it's, it will be often very difficult to quantify due to the various comorbidities that a patient has that would, that would affect that. But at the end of the day, this is a procedure that is, I mean, this is a condition that is essentially catastrophic and unless identified early and managed quickly, um, will lead to an unfortunate demise. So this is, uh, a condition that's only really been treated surgically in the last 70 years and then the last 20 to 25 years gone from open surgery to now, obviously either. Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, whilst 
descriptions of aneurysms date back uh, well within the evolution of humans on uh, on on Earth. Um, the reality is that the modern era of open abdominal aortic aneurysm repair or abdominal aortic aneurysm repair in itself really only became more mainstream with the uh, invention and then the use of synthetic arterial prosthesis. And really that has only become the standard of care since the um, early 1950s. But as you mentioned, the next advancement with the management of abdominal aortic aneurysms really has uh, started with the introduction of endovascular techniques. Um, and for that, we have to be very grateful to those who revolutionized that process with Waldoos and Perotti, um, really sort of bringing it to the mainstream. And it was not till 1994, um, so just under 30 years ago, that, that the first EVA was performed for a rupture. So really here we stand in 2021, where the endovascular repair of abdominal aortic aneurysms, especially for rupture, has really solidified itself as the standard of care. And um, in more recent times, it's really been reflected by the significant U-turn in the NICE guidelines that have been published in more recent times. Um, and I guess this is now reflective of the healthcare system that, that looks after ruptured aneurysms with... Um, with a hub and spoke model, whereby if a patient presents to a peripheral center, uh, they are urgently transferred um, to a tertiary center to allow a patient to undergo not only a minimally invasive approach if appropriate, but also having the team um, ready to deal with an open repair if required. Yeah, I think that hub and spoke model is quite important, Yogi. I think um, as uh junior consultants and recent uh, trainees, I think the one thing that we can appreciate is the importance of experience in managing ruptured AAAs. And certainly when you have a well-oiled and slick machine um, in all aspects of the management from the surgeon, nursing staff to anesthetics, ICU, um, the little things make a big difference, I think. So um, certainly I think for, for a large part of this experience is quite important yeah definitely and i think um our training is definitely is centered around uh larger tertiary centers to allow for sufficient exposure for this but also um it allows us to also understand the interaction that you need to have as the receiving surgeon in terms of what you want to ask uh the peripheral center for and what are the so underlying factors that you consider when uh, transferring the patient and the logistics associated with that. All right, Yogi, I'll uh, I'll place you I'll place you in the scenario. You're uh, you're on call. You've got a call from a peripheral hospital saying uh, we have a male patient uh, in their sixties who's presented with um, right lower quadrant pain and a CT has been performed of their abdomen that's demonstrated a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm. Your heart's racing. What are your, uh, what are your first steps and what are your thoughts at this stage? Yeah, look, you know, I think when you get the phone call, um, you, your, your adrenaline does get you going and um, you might be tired from your list earlier in the day, but suddenly you're, you're firing on all cylinders and um, 
you've had the octane fuel put in, you're ready to pump um, and, and uh, you're ready to go. But when, when I received the phone call, really the initial sort of conversation I'm having over the phone with the clinician is to try and get a feel for what's the current cognitive state of the patient. Um, are they actively being resuscitated? What's their blood pressure? Um, and are they maintaining appropriately on that? Um, and whether the clinician on the other side is requiring to sort of maintain uh, perfusion to maintain their mentation and the so-called permissive hypertension. Um, what are their wishes? And particularly, is there an advanced care directive? Um, and is there a next of kin or an enduring power of attorney? The, fun the pre-morbid functional status of the patient and their comorbidities and essentially requesting the clinician to organize um, images to be transferred urgently to the receiving PAC system, but also if the patient is appropriate for consideration of repair, then organizing and ensuring that their transfer has been coordinated promptly. And then sometimes this is by road, but frequently this may need to be by air to get them to a facility in time. Um, as you know, uh, Sam in Queensland, they build us strong and they, they build us tough. And there are some great, there are some great stories of people that have spent hours in transfer, but the reality is that you want this process to be as smooth and as efficient as you can. And I'm sure you've had similar experiences in Victoria, in Victoria as well. Yeah, I have. So obviously, um, uh, I guess just to go back a step um, in the scenario I gave you, um, the patient had already had a rupture confirmed on CT. We do occasionally get the situation where a patient presents with abdominal pain, hypotension, uh, and the differential of a rupture AAA is uh, considered, particularly if there may be a history of a small one under surveillance. Um, so in some situations, uh, you have to add in getting a CT into the equation as well as obviously um, assessing the patient on arrival. I guess the only alternative in that situation is um, the clinician may call you with a fast scan. And um, if they've demonstrated retroperitoneal uh, fluid, then you could make an argument just to either get the patient going towards your facility, unless there's going to be a delay to transfer and they're stable enough to get a scan locally. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, I think, first of all, uh, certainly no offence to any ED physicians who may be listening, but I feel that uh, the quality of fast scans can be a bit variable. Um, you know, you do get the occasional bladder that gets interpreted as a AAA. I have seen that happen. Um and look, that's understandable, especially in the heat of the moment. You've got a patient who's very unwell, writhing around in pain, and who actually may be quite large. It can be difficult to get a reliable fast scan. So, but yeah, I get your point. I wouldn't, um, if the patient's far away, I wouldn't delay them getting to you for further imaging. Oh, look, I, I think just to stand up for our ED brethren. Um, even if this is not a leaking aneurysm that's being referred, they clearly have something else that's making them unwell and oh, no, for what yeah. and for whatever reason they they would they potentially require care in a tertiary center so 
caution is um, the better friend of valor. And I suspect, um, uh, you know, if, if concerned, refer and if appropriate, send. I have to say, uh, once the patient does arrive, you sort of know from the end of the bed when you look at the patient if they're a rupture or not. I, I think um, they've sort of got that sort of grey look to them. You can see they've got some abdominal splinting. They're very sore, and quite often there's a large pulsatile mass that you could palpate. Yeah, I guess um, before they've arrived, however, Sam, I guess it'd be important um, perhaps to reflect on what your process would be in terms of uh, getting the the wheels in motion um, to make sure you're ready to go if this patient does have a diagnosis of a rupture. So I think it's prudent to um, begin to notify and alert some of the members of the hospital, particularly uh, theatre, um, where I work at the Northern Hospital, there is a code AAA that can be called um, once the patient has arrived and a seat as a, 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 a rupture has been confirmed. Uh, but certainly, I think um, there's potentially nothing worse than uh, having a full operating theatre and a patient that you've known about for two hours rock up with a rupture and having no space to put them. So certainly, early mobilisation of resources is is useful. Um, and look, you know, people can get a bit annoyed that uh, the rupture may not turn out to be a rupture once the patient arrives, but, you know, I think we all prefer not to do a rupture than having to do a rupture. So, but uh, yeah, early mobilization of, of resources, anesthetics, ICU, nursing staff. And I think um, most hospitals would have a rupture trolley. Uh, again, Austin, where I work at the Norland have one, the Austin has one. Um, I'm sure at the PA Yogi where you work, they have a rupture trolley or some equivalent. Would that be, would that yeah, be right? Definitely. And uh, um, there's this is often the upkeep of the senior nursing team to ensure that the equipment is quickly replaced if utilised. I think um, that should be constantly be reviewed so that um, teams are ready to enact a repair if required. I think... Um, Notification of teams early is definitely vital. However, I, I take your point, Sam, that um, uh, on the flip side, you, you don't want to cancel your whole elective list, um, especially if the diagnosis is proven otherwise and, I, and or the patient's not suitable. Yeah. Um, so I, I take the uh, hurried but cautious view to this often just to make sure that people are aware of timelines and what we're expecting Um the patient to come in so that can help guide what can go into the theater if anything and how much time uh, the team has before the patient needs to come off to get ready for the rupture yep so i mean the last one i did uh we got the call when we're about to finish a case we stopped between cases for the patient to arrive and um patient had a successful eva so um each situation is different where you are is different Maybe at home, you may be at work, you may be uh, in another hospital, you may be on the golf course. Um, yeah, that's right. But that's uh, right. it's about managing yourself in the situation. But uh, especially notifying ICU because once these patients hit ICU, 
they're fairly resource intensive. They may require dialysis straight away. So um, notifying ICU, I think, is is a prudent maneuver. Yeah, that's right. And often um, nursing teams need just that period of time to collect other pieces of equipment and or prepare a team member to be ready to be scrubbed so that they're ready to go when the patient hits the, the theatre doors. Often, Sam, when they um, when the patient then hits the emergency department, um, as the receiving team, uh, there are lots of wheels in motion. Um, and whilst the urge is to get the patient to the operating theatre as swiftly as possible, um, you do have a very short period of time to uh, assess the patient. And some of the things um, particularly that are useful is to begin by taking a, a, a bridged but directed history from the patient. Uh, what sort of things do you often find the patient complains of or describes in the lead up to their presentation? Um, quite often the uh, abdominal pain is sudden in onset. Um, and actually rather than abdominal pain, it's quite often back or flank pain. Um, and that usually means that the rupture is contained uh, within the retroperitoneum itself. Some patients actually report a period of um, having pain from the aneurysm itself, so they can have a brief period of vague abdominal pain. But usually once it's ruptured, it goes from vague and low intensity to sudden onset and severe. And quite often with that, there's an there's a associated period of collapse or presyncope. And um, obviously this is almost... Um, universally associated with a period of hypotension. Uh, obviously, the main differential diagnosis is uh, renal colic or renal colic sounding pain. However, um, usually with colic, it's um, it's just that it's colic. It comes in waves, whereas the pain from a rupture is fairly constant and severe. So it lacks that sort of colicky uh, quality. But certainly every now and then, especially in the uh, stoic Queenslander patient yogi, you get uh, someone who's admitted um, sometimes in peripheral hospital with a differential diagnosis of renal colic for a CT in the morning. And uh, with that CT is performed, they've actually had a rupture um, that's uh, been missed. Well, not missed, but... Um, They've been somewhat stable for a period of time. So the CT has been done in the morning and uh, everyone panics when they've seen that they've actually had a rupture. Yeah, look, definitely. And I think um, whilst we spoke about fast scans earlier, I think one of the potential advantages of fast scans being performed by more and more ED clinicians is the ability to discern these symptoms, uh, these presentations apart rather. Um, However, it's not uncommon that you have a patient initially diagnosed as um, having renal colic with sort of that classical loin to groin pain, which then subsequently gets um, further delineated uh, to being a, to, to being an eruption aneurysm. I guess the other considerations with the, the history is that the patients, as you said, uh, can also complain of some pre-existing abdominal pain prior to the lead up to their presentation. But I guess the other weird and wonderful sort of um, presentation can also be associated with a herald lead um, associated with um, 
the rupture of an aneurysm into an adjacent segment of bowel, um, which can also uh, lead to extra complexities in terms of dealing with that patient cohort. Um, to our junior trainees and um, unaccredited registrars, the history really needs to then proceed on to taking a, 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 a collection of data in regards to the patient's past medical history, their medications, particularly anticoagulants or any other uh, medication that may affect your perioperative management, and also a, a reasonably well-collaborated uh, social history in terms of the patient's pre-morbid level of function um, and uh, exercise tolerance, if feasibly possible, from the patient themselves. Sam, you talked about the end of bed test, which um, is definitely um, a fundamental aspect of all physicians, uh, irrespective of presentation. But um, some of the key things that you might see on examination may include. I think um, just uh, as you said, you know, the, the end of bed test is uh, important, but just on general inspection, the patients generally look terrible. They're grey, their eyes are closed, they're sweaty, um, they've got cool, pale peripheral peripheries, um, they're quite often tachycardic, hypotensive, and uh, the abdomen's quite distended and quite tender. Uh, often there is a palpable pulsatile mass, but I think in the literature it says this actually may not be as uh, common, but I actually I feel like every time I've seen a rupture, there's been an obvious uh, pulsatile mass. And if not, they've actually been um, super, super um, sore. Yeah. Um, often it's actually difficult to feel distal pulses, although um, post-op they may return. I think that's more a reflection of being um, hypotensive and shut down peripherally. Yeah. Um, when you Once you've gone through the process of your history and exam, then the wheels in, in motion that then turn as, as to whether this patient will proceed, um, first of all, for further imaging and then subsequently for uh, some form of intervention. Um, I guess when thinking about the appropriateness for a patient to proceed uh, to these next steps, it's really a combination of um, an assessment of their fitness for surgery, which can be difficult in the in their in in their presentation to the emergency department, and that's why a good social history or a collaborated history from a family member is important. A good understanding of the patient's com comorbidities, and fortunately, with the advent of endovascular surgery, more morbid patients do have the option of uh, repair. However, there are certain limitations to what is feasible and not and particularly uh, in terms of any conditions that may reduce a patient's life expectancy prior to a rupture itself, or if, or if there's a documented discussion in regards to the patient's wishes in regards to an aneurysm, or if the aneurysm was known to not be feasibly appropriate for a stent graft repair and the patient's not suitable for an open repair. Um, so comorbidities are fundamental to get a great understanding of whether a patient is suitable or fit. And the other thing that's in, uh, fundamental is also the, the clinical state of the patient. Sam, you and I have most definitely been in situations where a patient is being actively resuscitated in the context of a rupture. And unfortunately, we just know that the mortality in that circumstance is enormous, irrespective of whether a turn of circulation is achieved. 
uh, just because of the insult to multi-organ systems. Um, and that, yep. is, that is a difficult decision, a difficult discussion in the emergency department. But unfortunately, uh, that is uh, in that situation, um, a patient would not survive any form of operative intervention irrespective of what is done. There are, I'm sure, examples of people who have, but this is on the rare occasion rather than something that happens often. Yeah, that's a uh, good point you make, Yogi. Uh, every now and then um, uh, you get someone who with a suspected rupture um, without any imaging. And I think in the in the era of endovascular repair where you need a CT scan, I think there's a push for all from all of us to do a preoperative um, CT angiogram prior to proceeding to ruptured uh, AAA, uh, AAA repair. Just before you get, I guess you carry on though, the, the, it is at this point where you go to decide whether they're stable enough to go through the scanner or not. And whilst in the modern era, we would push for that to happen, it's not always feasible. So the, the point I'm trying to make, Yogi, is that um, if the patient, or what, I've, what I feel like I've seen is if the patient isn't suitable, sorry, stable enough for a CT scan, and that's due to them being um, hypotensive, needing to be resuscitated. They usually, unfortunately, I don't think uh, generally survive. Um, if they're so if they're so unwell that they can't be scanned, it usually means the whole um, sequence of events um, will, will unfortunately not culminate in the patient surviving. Yeah, definitely. Now, uh, Sam. There are multiple scoring systems that have been developed um, to try and assist with stratifying patients and their survival. Um, it's uh, whilst there have been real-world um, validation of some of these scoring systems, which include the Hardman Index, the Glasgow Aneurysm Score, the Edinburgh Ruptured Aneurysm Score, um, the VSGNE Ruptured AAA Risk Score and as well as possum and the Apache scores, the reality is that these um, scoring systems provide a guide um, in determining whether a patient is suitable for repair, whether that's open or endovascular in the context of a rupture, really shouldn't fall down to that assessment tool itself. There are multiple factors that need to be taken into account. And uh, for our trainees, um, fundamentally, that is what you learn through your training program to try and delineate those who are suitable and those who aren't. I mean, uh, I, I've never used any particular scoring system. I think um, really the decision to operate or not to operate needs to be um, individualized and there needs to be a fairly uh, detailed discussion with the family if there's time. Um, and I think it's reflected in the NICE guidelines, which suggests actually not to use um, scoring systems to assess whether patients are suitable for a uh, ruptured AAA repair. Yep. Now, uh, Sam, in, in the emergency department, some of the initial management strategies um, that are typically undertaken include achieving a large bore vascular access with some uh, baseline blood sent off, including a full blood count, a CHEM20, coagulation studies, group and hold, a venous blood gas is often sent, and, and then formally some units are then cross-matched as well, sorry. 
Uh, an arterial line is placed typically in the emergency department, and that's really to assist with the managing permissive hypotension um, uh, as well as an indwelling catheter that's, that's placed at the time. Um, and as mentioned before, more and more ED physicians and uh, I guess uh, vascular surgical registrars are putting ultrasounds on the belly to have a look at aneurysms and to look for the presence of uh, retroperitoneal fluid. Though, as we've talked about before, the accuracy of all that really depends on the operator and the, the imaging modality of choice is really a CT angi angiogram. So, Yogi, um, I think, you know, this is a time really if you've got uh, other uh, junior members of staff is, is when you can start delegating, you know, someone's looking at the CT, someone's uh, organising a stint graft, um, someone's helping uh, put the lines in, someone's speaking to the family, someone's talking to ICU. So there's usually a lot um, going on at this stage of, uh, of the uh, pre-surgical assessment of the patient. Yeah, and... You know, um, teamwork makes the dream work. And when it comes to ruptures, you want as many people on your side. Um, and that's not only the, the surgical team, you want the nursing team, the anesthetic team, the intensive care team, all heading in the right direction. Um, you know, um, the adrenaline is not only individualized to yourself, everyone's got, everyone's ready to go. So um, mobilizing your members of staff promptly is what's going to help in this situation. So Yogi, I've got a uh, got a question for you. You've got um, you've got a call from out of town from um, a junior member of the medical staff, and they've said, uh, "Doctor Yogi, I uh, hear you're the uh, vascular surgeon on call today for the PA. Just want to run this uh, CT report by you. This uh, patient's presented with severe abdominal pain and says uh, uh, potential leaking." abdominal aortic aneurysm well, is that do i need to worry worry about that yeah look uh sam the the the, the um the jargon and terminology around aneurysms is so broad but a, a leaking aneurysm refers to a, a rupture um and I, I guess the follow-on from that is really in regards to the definitions around um, a contained versus a, a frank rupture um, a contained rupture typically is with an aneurysm rupturing into the retroperitoneum and with the posterior abdominal wall musculature providing tamponade to achieve a transient seal to allow for the patient to maintain their mentation and perfusion of the end body systems and organs. Um, a frank rupture, um, unfortunately, is much more catastrophic and that is into the peritoneum itself and it's likely that the patient is going to be more unstable. And so... Uh, for for our colleagues out there, especially when you hear terminology like leaking aneurysm, um, this is a surgical emergency. The patient's care needs to be escalated um, and the patient needs to be transferred promptly. Um, and so I, I can't stress that enough. Um, you'd hope you'd hope that the junior doctor at that peripheral center is well supported by senior medical staff and um, I, I know that ED physicians are just as excited about aneurysms as we are just because it's, uh, it's all guns blazing. So uh, 
what um, what signs of a uh, impending rupture might you see on a uh, CT scan, Yogi? Yeah, look, you know, um, Sam, you you and I are trained as vascular surgeons, but I think um, one of the other aspects of our practice is being able to interpret the imaging. It's often uh, you often you don't have immediate reporting from a radiologist. Um, and I think part of our training is really to be able to comfortably look at um, CT angiography amongst other imaging modalities and try and provide a, um, some form of understanding of the images itself. So specifically with an impending rupture or a contained leak, you may see um, what's referred to as the drape sign uh, where the aorta drapes over the lumbar vertebra itself. Uh, you may see a high attenuation crescent sign within the within the sac itself, fissuring of t- the thrombus within the aneurysm, um, and always the heart sink moment is when you see the discontinuity of the calcium around the aneurysm sac, <laughs> identifying the point of rupture and also the so-called tangential calcium sign. Now, the reality also is that if the, per- if the person's then proceeded on to having a rupture, and they've had a so-called frank rupture, there will be um, retroperitoneal hematoma and associated with periaortic stranding. But also you can have contrast that then extravasates from the aorta into the retroperitoneum or into the peritoneum itself. And so um, these can be telltale signs of um, the pathology that you're looking at. So there's a nice case report in this this edition of Journal of Vascular Surgery Yogi, which um, illustrates some of these features nicely. We'll put uh, a link to that in the uh, show notes. Yeah, look, and I think um, for our trainees in particular and uncredited shows out there, um, if you're if you've had colleagues or you've had a patient that's come in with a rupture, um, always take the opportunity to look at a scan and try and talk through what you think um, looks unusual or compare it to a normal scan, um, you often having two scans side by side allows you to really distinguish what looks unusual, um, but also talk to your senior colleagues, trainees and consultants. And um, I think being familiar with interpreting a CT and communicating those findings to senior colleagues uh, will allow you to feel much more comfortable in dealing with these situations. Um, and Sam, you and I have both been in a situation where we've been the most junior person coordinating and managing a rupture um whilst your heart does race often it can get a, get to about 200 beats per minute where you're wondering whether your heart's about to launch out of its chest so yogi um a question that some of your uh, nursing colleagues at the pa might be wondering is um when may you do an open triple a repair and may may uh, when may you um do a reeve what we'd call a reva or an eva for a rupture yeah, look, really the consideration in terms of the approach to management comes down um, to multiple factors, but to break it down simply, uh, it, it, it's thought of in terms of the patient's fitness for surgery, their functional status pre-morbidly, and their current clinical state um, as sort of the, the, the initial factors I would consider, but then subsequently it'd be aneurysm morphology and also uh, the suitability of an endovascular technique uh, without compromising, um, well, we, as, as, as far as it can within the products uh, 
instructions for use. So I know this um, somewhat relates to our previous podcasts on EVAR planning, but when when is the aneurysm morphology suitable? Yeah, so there are various factors, as you remember from that podcast, and those of you who have not listened to it, we recommend you have a a squeeze through that. But really, uh, broadly speaking, uh, things that you look at would include um, the aortic neck, um, the angulation of the neck, um, as well as um, the access vessel diameters, um, tortuosity of vessels, um, as well as um, any other aberrant anatomy that may make a purely endovascular technique difficult, such as aberrant renals and so forth. However, in a rupture situation, that's less of an issue because this is about life preservation versus um, compromise or um, or injury to um, potentially renal function in that particular example. Um, so broadly speaking, they're the sort of broad areas that you would really consider um, the suitability for an endovascular first technique. Now, I guess the follow-on from that is, as most of our theatre nurses know, that it's, when you start off with an endovascular repair for a rupture, it can often lead to other adjuncts, including embolization of internal iliac arteries and extension of limbs or even the use of uh, your favorite tool the endo anchor when you need to (laughs) when you need to when you need to get yourself out of trouble Um, however further adjuncts which I I have to say the Australian experience is probably not as great as the American experiences things such as um, chimneys where you have stent grafts that are placed into the renals to allow for an um, additional uh, area to the to the landing zone or even things such as um physician custom-made backbench graphs in a, in a real disaster situation as well um so that really sort of defines where you think about how far you're willing to push the device versus proceeding with an open repair but in summary we have to look at the morphology of the aneurysm and be confident that you're going to be able to get a seal top and bottom. Mm. Um, and obviously the stakes are high with a, with a ruptured triple uh, A to get it right. Yeah. Look, and I think the one thing I would stress um, to all members of the team, but specifically to medical members of the team, communication is important. Talk to your team, talk to your theater nurses, talk to the anesthetists, let them know what your approach is um, so that everyone is on the sort of everyone is aware of the game plan. If you have a quick moment to debrief or to run through the plan, that's always effective. However, um, vascular nurses are very much used to running on the fly and having to deal with um, changes on the go. Um, and so just, just the ones in your theater, Yogi. Mate, look, uh, nurses everywhere. Look, um, there, there is nothing more that I, uh, you know, I, I cannot stress how important it is to have a great nursing team. And I'm sure you work with some amazing nurses across your centers. Certainly do. Uh, but I think, you know, realistically, uh, it, I mean, it's obvious that the patients who have a EVAR for a rupture do a lot better than those who have open repairs. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And that might be, there might be a bit of selection biases in, 
their anatomy might be a bit better. They're intaking better. They're holding their blood pressure better. Um, so they might be sort of better from the outset. But certainly those who have had a stent graft for a rupture, I think in my experience, um, the results tend to be a lot better. Yeah, look, I think at, at the end of the day, it comes down to the perioperative morbidity that's associated with an open repair versus a stent graft repair. Um, you, you know, as you and I both know, the day following a stent graft repair for a rupture, you might have a patient that's eating breakfast sitting out in, in a chair and yeah, with, a, with an open rupture, they, they potentially still tubed, ventilated, in the intensive care, hooked up to dialysis, and um, whilst they're whilst they've got peripheral pulses, the rest of them are still struggling to keep up, and that's um, that's the difficult thing about this uh, of what we do, which is that um, we inflict such a significant degree of morbidity on our patients, um, and they often go into it with a with some understanding, but not often a great understanding of what's to come. And part of the privilege of what we do, I think, every day is um, figuring out what's the best thing for patients, but also trying to do our best to educate them for it. And um, that's often challenging. Yeah. So, Sam, um, you're, you've discussed your plan with your team and everyone's on board. Um, you've got... Um, the patient that's ready to go on the table. Um, talking first about an endovascular repair, um, what are some of the technical considerations you might uh, look at in terms of ensuring that the procedure is successful? What sort of things might you consider? I think the first consideration, Yogi, is that the procedure can be done under local anesthetic and sedation. And, um, there needs to be some assessment of the patient beforehand as to whether they can tolerate that. Um, some of the patients can be fairly uh, drowsy and uh, somewhat obtunded um, in the early stages and can be even combative, uh, in which cases they would not be necessarily suitable for that. But um, if they're maintaining well and they're following and obeying commands, certainly the procedure can be done on the local anesthetic and sedation, which obviously um from a hemodynamic point of view and a recovery point of view is uh, generally much better for the patient. Um, Can I ask you a question, Sam, just in mm -hmm. regards to the hemodynamic compromise? Why, why is local sedation better than, a, say, a general anesthetic for that reason? Well, you're basically maintaining uh, a couple of reasons. So you're basically maintaining abdominal tone um, and theoretically you're maintaining the tamponade on the rupture. And then second of all, the uh, anesthetic agents um, reduce your blood pressure. Um, so the combination of those two can um, uh, dramatically change the uh, hemodynamic status of the patient. Yeah, and I guess um, it's always a risk-benefit consideration, but, um, but um, I'm sure you and I have both been in circumstances where the ruptures try to stand up and walk off the table as you're deploying the steam graft. And you've, um, it makes you've things got... difficult. It makes things difficult. <laughs> it makes for an entertaining afternoon in the operating suite, but um, it usually, doesn't allow um, you to come. Usually that stage I ask the patient, where are you, where are you going and do you have somewhere to be? <laughs> well, they, they, they probably were doing something more important <laughs> than being at work. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So you just got to assess, is this going to fly or not? Um, 
But uh, obviously, you know, you've sized the graphs. Um, in comparison to an elective repair, you haven't, you almost um, never are able to show the uh, uh, company rep the images beforehand to go through their planning software. So you're, you're somewhat dependent on your own ability to plan a graft um, on your own um, and size it uh, independently. And so again, for our trainees, this is why it's important that you spend your time sizing elective cases so that when it comes to a rupture, you're familiar with stents, diameters, the um, access size of these graphs, um, and it becomes second nature. And Sam, you and I both had little um, product books in our bags or on our phones that we'd look at and use as reference. Yeah, and I think um, I think for a rupture, you'd want to be trying to err on the side of oversizing rather than undersizing. I think um, you don't want to be in a situation where you've undersized your graft, patient's hypotensive. And then um, I think, you know, the heart sink moment is to have a type 1A endoleak after a uh, EVA for a rupture. And then for the for those of us um, who may be not as familiar, a type 1A endoleak just refers to blood um, entering into the aneurysm sac, but around the stent graft at the top. Yep. Which is, uh, uh, can be difficult, um, to treat. Um, so the other thing I think about is which graft am I going to use? And the decisions are super renal versus, um, infrarenal, uh, fixation. Uh, I mean, look for ruptures. I've generally gone for super renal fixation. Um, I think, um, generally the super renal aorta is going to be healthier and, you know, you want every bit of, um, security you have that you're going to get a good, um, good seal and be able to, uh, uh, precisely deploy the graft. I think, uh, in terms of, uh, infrarenal grafts, um, I do think there's a role, particularly if you're not sure that you're going to be able to get a seal at the top and you need to convert to open. It's much easier to deal with a, a, a graft without super renal fixation if you have to um, take it out. Yeah, and, and again, Sam's referring to the, the crown of thorns that you'll see at the top end of the graft um, and a, definitely a valid consideration, um, especially for those of us that use a... Um, a graph without suprarenal fixation and, and its role um, in particular types of aneurysms. Um, however, I would say that the vast majority of workhorse infrarenal graphs have suprarenal fixation, yep. Sam. So um, I think the next consideration then is, um, and this is something we talked about a lot, Yogi, uh, in our sort of uh, pre-fellowship exam uh, study which was the uh, use of um, what people would call Reboa or a, um, a aortic occlusion balloon um, uh, intraoperatively or preoperatively to basically get uh, control. Uh, I think, you know, for um, a uh, EVA, it can unnecessarily complicate the procedure and slow things down. And I think um, in, you know, my own hands, I feel like I could deploy the graft fairly quickly. Um, 
you know, I suppose there are some situations where the patient may be so unstable that you need to put the balloon up. But uh, my preference would be to not do that uh, unless it's absolutely required and try and deploy the graft. Look, I think it's probably a useful tool to have on your table. And as you know, Sam, patients can transiently change uh, from being stable to unstable on the table itself. Um, and having a coda balloon uh, helps, but what you also really need is a long 12 friend sheath as well. Uh, and the reason for this is you want the balloon to stay in position. And with a long sheath in, um, this allows you to support the balloon. So um, you've got to identify a junior member of staff with the appropriate bicep musculature to hold it in place or, um, or, 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 or uh, another member of staff that's going to be able to keep the, the, co the coder in place to allow not only the anesthetic team to catch up, but for yourself to catch a few breaths before you deploy your stent. And um, I would actually make sure that the uh, coder, normally we don't open the coder at the start of an EVA, but uh, I would have it uh, open on the table at the start, as well as the um, 12 French sheath. And uh, I would make sure that the uh, actually the main body that you intend to deploy has been open really before you've done your first run. Yeah. And... Um... You've take it's the, you've taken your main body up, um, and to deploy before deploying the main body, you've now deflated the coda. You've taken it down, and you're rapidly deployed um, the main body uh, until um, the ipsilateral limb has been released. Um, if the patient becomes unstable at this point, Sam, what would you do? So. Um... At this stage, I would uh, deploy the ipsilateral limb fully, uh, remove the um, dilator and leave the sheath in place and then uh, put the uh, coda on the uh, ipsilateral side through the main body and then uh, cannulate the yeah. gate from the other side as you normally would. And the reason Sam's done this is because you've got wire access now that essentially allows you, that joins the iliac system to the suprarenal aorta and you have the ability to position the balloon um, rather than uh, having to cannulate the contralateral gate. And yeah, yeah I think uh, one question, uh, you know, people may wonder is if you have a, you know, coda balloon in the thoracic aorta providing um, occlusion and hemostasis and then you put a pigtail uh, underneath that are you actually going to see anything or get a decent run um, through your pigtail I think the answer to that is yes you do yeah there's still some flow that still is able to come down from an integrate fashion it's just not as significant you'll have a bit more hold up of contrast but you'll still have outflow and so there is there are the feeding vessels into the aneurysm itself um that will allow you to achieve an angiographic view with the coder up. Yep. And so Sam, um, what sort of strategies do you um, take into account to try and cannulate the contralateral gate? Um, so I, on the contralateral side, I use a long eight French sheath, um, usually the uh, 23 centimeter one or the 30 centimeter one. 
So first of all, that gets you a bit closer to the uh, gate itself and I think makes it easier to cannulate. Um, in the elective setting, um, I do try and cannulate with a pigtail, but I think in a rupture, I would um, just go straight to an angled catheter like a Vansky 2 or something similar. Hero. <laughs> um I do find that having the having the long A-French sheath closer does actually um, does actually really reduce a lot of your cannulation troubles. Um, but look, you know, you need to be familiar with other catheters as well. C2, Cobras, uh, ones commonly used, but um, I like actually just honestly just going through each of the Vanskys, Vansky 2, Vansky 3, just to get a bit more angle and then I've qu- I've quite often not really had to go much beyond Vansky three to be honest to cannulate. Yeah, look, I think that together with angulation of the C arm appropriately, um, positioning it in one plane and then changing the C arm angle to allow you to cannulate the gate also helps. It makes you look like you're slick at this, uh, despite the fact that your heart's pounding. But um, I guess if you're having difficulty with cannulation, the other things that you could consider is coming up and over with a snare, uh, trying to ballerina the limbs uh, coming from the arm or in, in circumstances where this is becoming just too difficult, especially with the patient unstable, converting to an AUI, plugging the common on the contralateral side and committing the patient to a, a, a fem-fem crossover. However, uh, that would necessitate a patient having their anesthetic change from a uh, local sedation to a general so uh, it's not a it's not one that's taken lightly but sometimes may need to happen uh, and sam i guess one further point to ask you about with an endovascular repair is do you give heparin um, and if so how much and when um yeah i would uh, give heparin um i would give uh, five five thousand before i'd introduce the uh, main body would you i think it's i think there's no good answer to this yeah, look, I, I, um, I, I base it on, I guess, stability of the patient and if they've had a significant, um, if they're unstable with um, significant derangement and often they then end up with a coagulopathy, I do reserve the right to withhold um, and I take it on a case-by-case basis. But typically I would because of the, or try and tier the dose um, accordingly um, just to try and mitigate some of the uh, issues associated uh, with uh, coagulopathy, especially with their extremist position. And then uh, Sam, moving on just with open repair, um, this itself is a much longer discussion for another day, but um, what are some of the brief technical things that you might think about with an open repair? Yeah, look, I think everyone um, does this a bit differently. Um, my general approach is um, if you're going for an open repair, um, supraceliac clamp first before opening the uh, retroperitoneum and then um, early positioning of a infrarenal clamp if possible. Um, I think if you go straight for an infrarenal clamp without supraceliac control, the issue is you open up the retroperitoneum and turn your contained rupture into a free intraperitoneal rupture. And then putting the clamp on can be difficult, um, especially when there might be a left renal vein in the way, Yogi. So um, that's my general approach. Yeah, look, and I think that 
raises the important concept of making sure you're looking out for anatomical anomalies on that CTA. Nothing worse than putting a clamp on and straight into a retroaortic left renal vein. Um, and that would make your life a lot more difficult on the day. Yeah, the uh, bright red blood mixed with uh, dark blue blood is a very um, humbling, humbling sight. Yeah, look, and, and you know, um, not only that, recognizing it can also be difficult just because you're so focused on an end goal that sometimes it's hard to know that that's what's happened. Um, can I also say that uh, the coda balloon can play a role with the open repair, especially initially when a patient is quite unstable and they're brought, being brought straight up to theatre. Um, uh, getting groin access and putting a balloon up just to give in, the anaesthetist enough time to achieve stability can make the difference between the patient's survival or their mortality. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, you know, in the era in the era of um, us not doing many supraceliac exposures anymore, Yogi, um, you may try and dissect out a supraceliac aorta and find that it's actually difficult to palpate due to the patient's uh, hypotension. So having a balloon there may actually provide you with um, some afterload. Um, enough to actually be able to uh, palpate the pulse and uh, help uh, uh, aid your dissection. Yeah. Now, fixing the aneurysm and a rupture really should focus on the primary pathology that it, it, that's in front of you. So uh, you want to perform the shortest possible procedure um, so that you can get the patient off the table. They're already an extremist on the basis of their presentation. They're going to have multi-organ involvement and their ability to then tolerate much more complex intervention for other adjacent aneurysmal disease um, is probably not necessary. And so when planning your operative approach, look at the problem, deal with the problem. And you, you know that if you've got a patient at the end that survived, you can always come back and deal with whatever is left. To yeah. Keep it, keep it simple. Yeah. And then, of course, with ruptures, um, with blood in the retroperitoneum, this can often lead to the subsequent presentation of abdominal compartment syndrome, Sam, um, whereby intra-abdominal pressures can be elevated, um, which can then lead to uh, end-organ malperfusion um, as a result of this. And so you're a, you're a big advocate, and, and I think it's an important role of performing a laparostomy uh, potentially in some circumstances, especially if there's been significant blood loss within the retroperitoneum. Yeah, I think, um, you know, with an open rupture, it's uh, often hard to get uh, get get everything absolutely 100% dry. The patients are so coagulopathic. So first of all, I think, um, you know, in some situation, there is a role to packing the retroperitoneum um, and even securing your packs into the retroperitoneum and suturing them in place and then, planning to come back the next day to take them out. Um, but also, um, as we know, that a lot of these patients will stay intubated for at least 24 hours. So I think it's always, well, quite often it's a good strategy to leave the abdomen open with an abdominal vac and then plan to come back in in 24 hours' time, not only just to make sure everything's completely dry, but also to check um, uh, the bowel, make sure the bowel hasn't become ischemic. Um, and then at that stage, if everything looks okay, you can close. Yeah, look, I think, um, again, being cautious in this circumstance, 
um, is is vital. And um, if you if you are concerned, then you're well within uh, your right to to bring that patient back, uh, even if that's just to have a look and then formally close them uh, as required. Yeah, yeah, I think this is a this is a big topic, and probably we could have um, <laughs> gone on for another hour, or you know, I'm sure we'll do a part two someday. Um, and with that, Yogi, if people want more information, where can they where can they go? Uh, so, Sam, uh, people can find us uh, on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, on Twitter, we're at Vascular FM. On Instagram, with the Retrograde Approach. Um, and we're also we can also be found on the World Wide Web at Vascular.fm. Yogi, until the next one. Thanks, Sam. Have a good one, mate. See ya, bye.